You know our hearts. None of us here has a pure motive. None of us here has ever had a pure motive. But your grace is bigger than all that. We're here. Because we want to look like you. And Lord, I believe uh, this gathering for 75 minutes is critical to that taking place. Thank you for your church. Thank you for each one that represents who you are, each voice, um, each life. May you be glorified now as we look at your life through your son, Jesus, and the life of Mary and her act of worship. May we learn, Lord, from this. For whatever reason, you made sure this was in every gospel because I believe this was your heart language of worship. So guide us to that end, we pray in Christ's name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I read in a newspaper a true account that talked about a young man uh, last week I read about this, on a rafting trip in Maine. Uh, he saw a dam coming up in this river with rapids, and he thought he could navigate it, but he couldn't, and it flipped his raft and threw him into the frigid water. The back current of the rapid pinned him in a, whirl, a whirlpool at the base of the dam, and a tug of war ensued. The water and him, the water and him. He was trying to swim to shore, but the river was winning. The water was frigid, he was in great danger, and there was a group of people witnessing this whole event on the side of the shore, protecting their lives and calling out encouragement to him and calling 911 so the professionals could come to his aid. If he couldn't break free, he would die of hypothermia. And that's what happened. The minute he died, his body was sucked into the whirlpool, and a few seconds later, the eyewitnesses reported it threw him out downriver, away from the clutches of the whirlpool. The point is, the current that he resisted, that he thought would kill him, would have saved him. In trying to save himself, he killed himself. His salvation was counterintuitive. The apparent death was his actual path to life. I open with that story, not to make us all dejected and sad, but I want to warn us, what I'm about to say in the next 30 minutes, what happens in this story in Luke chapter 12, it's going to seem counterintuitive to each one of us. I promise you, I've done this twice already this morning, at some point today, you're going to push back and go, now you're taking things too far. But I want to encourage you, it's that counterintuitive sense that Jesus said, that's where life is found. It's actually a grace from God for life. Jesus said it this way, later on in John 12, I believe, um, having experienced what we read about, he said this, anyone who loses their life, that's exactly what Mary did, we'll see it, Uh, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The path of discipleship, of becoming like Christ, is a counterintuitive path. Now we're a week away from the death of Jesus. And central on the mind of Jesus, there is such a shift in the Gospel of John. If you're here for the first time, we're walking through this Gospel uh, all year long. And there's a central shift in his mind, in his ministry. No more public, no more miracles, uh, no more great discourses. Jesus is focused with laser-like focus on his disciples, asking this question. What is it going to take for you to stand with me in a culture, in a current that wants to take you down? How can you be a robust follower of mine in a culture that wants to crucify me? It was relevant to his disciples, 
and it's relevant to us. The final week of Jesus' life, of which John gives half of his gospel to, it was the priority of the gospel. He slows down at a snail's pace. The priority is this. How do I create followers of mine that endure, that prevail, that are robust? Central to that, what we're going to learn today, it's in all of John 12, but we're just going to take the first eight verses. Central to that is the value of worship. The value of worship. Now, before we go further, I'm not talking about what we do for 30 minutes on a Sunday by singing in a service. In every story of worship in the book of John, none of them take place in a temple. None of them take place with music. Just like this story. The word worship is actually used or alluded to three times in this story. None of them have to do with music. It's only us in the West that have confined worship to singing, compartmentalize it. Peggy, I think you mentioned, I don't know why I compartmentalize that. And then we go live our own life the rest of the, of the world. Jesus, to his disciples, your whole life is worship. I define worship the way the video did, and I put that definition on the bottom of page one. Whenever I use the word, that's how we'll define it. And I want to say to us, and I need you to hear this, there's a way things work, everybody. There's a way things work in the universe. There's a way things work in our world. There's a way things work in creation. There's a way things work in our lives. We were created to worship. You will never look in the eyes of anyone who's not a worshiper. The question is, who or what do we worship? And is it life-giving or life-sucking? Paul had this interesting comment in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 19. Kind of alludes to Brian's story. He said, their God is their stomach. In other words, they worship and sacrifice and find their identity. Paul was talking about these people in their stomach. I can relate to that like Brian, right? And my God is growing bigger by the decade. For me, when I get stressed, it's not chocolate chip cookies like this weekend. It's peanut butter cookies. And I don't even go for the cookies. I go for the dough. (laughs) And when I'm stressed, I open the temple called my refrigerator. And like this weekend, there's a whole bowl of dough. And I worship by eating. (laughs) We have a worship problem in our country around food, right? We glory in food. Our God is our stomach. And we sacrifice money. We sacrifice our health. We sacrifice our weight. We sacrifice our cholesterol level. We sacrifice years of life because we think that satisfies and that will give us life. I was in a counseling. I don't do a lot of counseling because most of the time when you come to me for counseling, you leave feeling worse. <laughs> That's why we have Brian Wren. He's the master. Um, but anyway, this woman was in my office, and she said, uh, I got a problem. What's your problem? She said, my husband has a screen problem. She wasn't talking about pornography. She was just saying he is addicted to the screen. He comes home. He can't get away from his email. He can't get away from his text. And he goes online and plays these games with people from all over the world. And I said, oh, your husband doesn't have a screen problem. He has a worship problem. He thinks that screen gives him an identity. He finds his community in that screen. He thinks it gives him life and restores him. The reality is it's sucking life from him. I was speaking at a student conference, a mission conference, the one that our students go to. Years ago, I used to be uh, the annual speaker at this thing, and and I spoke on purity to a 1,000 high school students, God's standard of purity and how it's liberating. You can imagine how that went over. Afterwards, this, this girl came, and she was, I'll never forget this. We were behind, we're that stage, is right in Ensenada, you guys. We were behind the stage, and she goes, um, I need to talk to you. And she was pretty angry. 
and she was holding a picture of her boyfriend. I said, what's up? And she said, um, I think you're wrong. I go, really? And she goes, I go, tell me more. And I wasn't judgmental. I was just there to listen. She said, uh, this is my boyfriend. He's not a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. And, um, and we sleep together. We have sex. And I think what you said is wrong. I think God's okay with that. I don't think I have a sex problem. And I said, I don't think you do either, actually. She goes, really? I go, no, I think you have a worship problem. She goes, what? I go, you're worshiping that guy. You can't break up with him. He's your savior. And I, I said, in very humble ways, because this is a tender moment, this is a high school student, I said, um, I think Jesus is a better savior. That guy wants to take from you. Jesus would never take from you. He wants to give to you. That guy loves you conditionally. You stop sleeping with him, I'll tell you where this relationship will go. Jesus loves you unconditionally. I said, that guy degrades you. Jesus would never degrade you. You don't have a sex problem. You have a worship problem. See, we're all worshipers, everybody. There's a way things work. And all that leads to John chapter 12 because it's all about worship. We're back in Bethany now. Jesus is heading back towards Jerusalem. Bethany is just over a hill from Jerusalem, two miles away. There's a dinner held at a guy named Simon. Uh, he, the Bible says he's a, Matthew says he's a leper. He's actually an ex-leper. Now, how do you become an ex-leper? Jesus touches you, right? Okay. At the table is Lazarus. He was an ex-dead guy. How do you become an ex-dead guy? Jesus touches you. You know what PCC is? A bunch of exes, right? Amen? Can I get an amen? amen? Does anyone else have a touch of Jesus and they're no longer the same? That's my story, right? Praise God. So there's a table of exes. It's called a worship service, right? And, and it's not given in Lazarus' honor. It's not given in Simon's honor. It's given in Jesus' honor. The Bible says that. And Mary interrupts the gathering by doing something audacious to the people in the gathering. We'll build that out. But to Jesus, he's like, oh, my gosh, I want the whole world to hear about what takes place right here. Let's pick it up in John chapter 12, and let's look at what is the heart language of Jesus. In a church that has four Sunday gatherings and four different styles of worship, music, uh, do you ever wonder, and, we, and I'm glad we do that, right? We're reaching more people because of that. But the question is not what is your heart language, 8.55 or 9.05 or 11 or 5 o'clock at night. The question is this. What's the heart language of worship for Jesus? We're going to see it right here, okay? Extravagant worship. The first thing that touches Jesus' heart, heart language, and it's not singing, has nothing to do with music, they abandon their pride. They abandon their pride. Look at verse 1 to 3. Six days before the Passover, so it's Saturday, right? And Jesus will die on a Friday. It's six days before. Jesus comes to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining. Keyword, that's how they ate. They didn't have chairs like we do. They laid down and their feet were in someone else's face, reclining at the table. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. That's an understatement. The pure nard came from the Himalayan mountains up in northern India. This was imported a long way to Jerusalem, to Bethany. Uh, according to Judas's assessment, he was a smart, really, he was a smart man. He was uh, the, the keeper of all the money, the controller of the Jesus operation. Uh, in today's numbers, I won't go through the details of how I got here. Just trust me. If you get question it, come up and talk afterwards. $24,000. 
in today's numbers. That's a lot. I remember when I was dating Anne, uh, we were getting pretty serious in our dating, and I thought, how do I tell her what she's worth to me? And so I took out a check to Ann Gadini, and I wrote a million dollars, and wrote the check, signed it, and gave it to her. Now, I didn't have the money in my, I still don't have the money in my account for that, right? It just, this is Mary's way of just going, you're worth everything to me, and pours out $24,000 worth of perfume on Jesus. She poured it on Jesus' feet and nard with a tacky substance, red. It's what they uh, put uh, a, a part of it, uh, a diluted part of it. It wasn't pure. It was what they buried people with. They, she wiped his feet with their hair. And I love this. We prayed for this in every gathering today. The house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. That's what we want for us as a church, to be marked by people poured out for Jesus. That that would be the fragrance of PCC. We'd smell like that. Now, according to custom, Mary did several disgraceful things. First thing she did was wash his feet. To the Jews, foot washing, because they walked with sandals and dirt, you've heard this before, it was beneath any Jew to wash a foot. You'll see this next week when we get into John 13. None of the disciples want to do it. So they would hire a, a Gentile slave. That's, that's all it was worthy of doing. A Gentile slave. They would be the foot washer person. So Mary was completely taking the position of a slave before Jesus in washing his feet. And then she does this. She lets down her hair. In that day, it was only the prostitutes that showed their hair, let alone let them down. Even in the East today, uh, people cover their faces because their hair is a disgrace, women, for their hair to be seen in many Eastern and especially Islamic cultures. But for Mary, it was that. But Mary's saying, I don't care. I don't care what people in the room think. Call me a prostitute. I don't care. I am pouring myself out for this man. All I know is that brother of mine was dead, and he's alive at this table. $24,000 worth of perfume is nothing for his life and for what I owe to him. Whatever you call me, call me a prostitute, I don't care. It's nothing compared to the gratitude I feel to that man, Jesus, for what he did for my brother. That's worship that Jesus wants the whole world to hear about. See, worship is really, Mary, what she's doing here is making a statement. And that's what worship is with our lives. Our whole life is a statement. And with Mary, she's saying, I don't care what anybody thinks. I know who you are, Jesus. And I know what you did for my brother. So forget what everyone else thinks. I'm making a statement with my life. You're, ready for this? Worth it. You're worth it. She abandons her pride and goes for it. What's the biggest competition to my worship and my devotion to God? Pride. I care what you think. I, I want to be as inbounds to where you admire my devotion to Christ, but I don't want to be too fanatical. I'm just confessing here. Right? I, I set a limit to my devotion and the limit set by pride. Uh, pride at its core is, is the essence of saying this. You owe me. That's pride. Right? You owe me. My wife's been sick for two weeks. True story. And uh, coughing, and uh, we, when Ann goes down, the whole, pro, the whole family doesn't work well, okay? <laughs> so in the middle of the night, she's coughing, and she says, Gary, uh, 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 can you go downstairs and get, uh, uh, get my meds? Uh, uh, uh. Now, can you imagine if I said at that point, excuse me, it's two in the morning. Do you know who I am? 
I'm Gary Gadini, the lead pastor of the Peninsula Covenant Church, and you want me to get out of bed and walk 10 steps downstairs and get you meds? Now, what would that get me besides a black eye? <laughs> right? That's the essence of saying, you owe me. Are you kidding? If she asked me to walk a flight of stairs up the Empire State Building in the middle of the night, in my boxers, don't, leave, don't think of that. <laughs> I don't know why I even said that. Uh, I, would, I would still be in her debt. If every night she asked me to go to CVS Pharmacy, which is open 24 hours a day, and drive and get her meds every night, I would still be in her debt. I owe her. I'd be nothing without her. That's the essence of what Mary's doing here. Many people come to God and say, you owe me. I've given my life to you as if that puts God in our debt. I've given 2% of my money. I tip you every Sunday. So that, that puts God in our debt? You owe me. I read my Bible every day. We owe God? I'm sorry, God owes us? No, 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 no. Mary had no pride. She knew she was in his debt, and so she abandoned herself to the worship of this God. And that's what fuels followers of Jesus. And it's what makes them stand against the culture, that mindset of abandon and abandoning pride. Now, the second thing, we've got to hurry up here. They give all they have. Worshippers of God, uh, according to Mary, that Jesus, in his heart language, they operate under a whole different accounting system, a whole different. They don't count pennies. They give it all and trust God with it, and he gives back to them. Look at verse 4. That fragrant aroma in verse 3 that filled the room, it's about to be invaded by a toxic voice called Judas. Verse 4, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, was, who was later to betray him, Judas is always described in the Gospels that way. Uh, he objected. Now we have the first recorded words of Judas in all the Bible, and it's a complaint. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now he didn't say this. John's writing now 60 years after the account, and so he's putting commentary in based on his knowledge base of 60 years. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and a keeper of the money bag. In the Greek tense here, I'll say it in the way it's written in the original language, he continually used to help himself to what was put in. Judas led the attack, but Matthew, in his account of this story, if you're taking notes, Matthew 26, verse 8, says this, but the disciples were indignant. All the disciples were, were just upset over this. When they saw this and they said, you ready for this? And here's what will come after you when you become a worship extravaganza, extravagant worshiper. Here's what will come. What a waste, Matthew 26, 8 says. All the disciples are chiming in now. What a waste. See, they're just being pragmatic and sensible. The money could have benefited many poor families, but instead it was wasted, wasted on Jesus the bottom line for Judas and the disciples, it wasn't worth it. Jesus wasn't worth it. See, Judas would later betray Jesus for how many pieces of silver? 30. Four months worth of wages. Here's Mary pouring out almost a whole year's worth of wages. For Judas, he's saying, ah, Jesus is worth four months, but not a year's worth. You know it's coming. The question was Jesus worth to you? In light of all he's done, in light of all he's given, 
what's he worth to you? When you pour yourself out extravagantly with abandon, when you give all you have to Jesus, you can take this one to the bank, men and women. You will be called wasteful. And you know who mostly will give their voice to this? Are you ready for this? The church. You get extravagant in your worship with your lifestyle, the church will stop you, well-meaning, but they'll say, hey, don't take things too far. I can relate to that. I have five daughters. I pray that my daughters play some part, that our whole family would play some part in the fulfillment of the Great Commission, that everyone would hear, and that the Gadinis would have a small part in that. Honestly, one of my daughters is looking at colleges. She's off in the South right now, touring some colleges. She came back to me and said, hey, Dad, I think God's called me not to go to college. You know what? If what this Bible says is true, I think I have a call in my life to go to the ends of the world. I'm going to be one of those people to reach an unreached people group. I'll go to the Toposa. We're sponsoring this church, an unreached people group called the Toposa. I'm not going to go to college. I'm going. You know what my response would be? Honey, 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 you're taking this a little too far. You may be called to go, but go to college first. Get a college education. It'll do you well in life. Maybe you'll grow out of it. Why is that? I was fueled in college by a man named Jim Elliott. I read everything he wrote, his journals. I still have in my, in my office uh, his journals. Jim Elliott was in the 50s. Uh, most of you may know this, but was a student at Wheaton who felt the call and I don't think everyone is called to go to the ends of the world. I'll be very clear. Many of you are living this out, uh, dis- disciples disguised as principals, plumbers, doctors, teachers. Uh, so don't, don't take what I'm not saying. Don't pick up what I'm not laying down. Um, but Jim Elliott was. And he got his Wheaton education, and he went to his parents and said, I'm going to the ends of the earth. And his parents said, no, no, no. You need to be a youth pastor in America. And he went, and he made uh, a covenant with God for these people called the Alka Indians. And they made contact with them, and him and some buddies landed on a beach, which is now known as Blood Beach, because a week after he landed, he was speared to death. And the world said, what a waste. This great man to give seven days, and now he's gone. Jim Elliott, in his journal, like a week before, was debating the cost of this. He didn't know he'd lose his life. But in his journal, he wrote this famous line that said this. It's no, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm one of millions of people who are motivated by the life of Jim Elliott and are serving Christ full time because of him. About six months after he died, his wife went to the Alcos with her young daughter and led the killer of Jim Elliott to Christ. And the Alcos have a thriving church now. And they've even come to America. There's a movie that hit America called The Tip of the End of the Spear. Um, they have a, it's just amazing what's going on. Waste? See, when you give yourself extravagantly to Christ, that will come up in your mind. I'm going too far. I'm doing too much. I just wanted to ask you, how much is too much when it comes to worshiping the Savior? How far is too far when it comes to living for Jesus? And I'm not saying going to the ends of the world. Many of you are not called to that. I'm saying in your job, being who God called you to be with abandon, that's worship. That's what that video taught me. 
Well, quickly, one more thing. Last thing, and this, if you're wondering, how do I get there? What do I do with this? The third aspect is really where to start. Uh, what are we saying? There's a way things work. We all were created to worship. What we worship either gives life or sucks life out of us. We are created to worship Christ. That's the way, we're, that's the way things work. It has nothing to do with singing on a Sunday. It has everything to do with a lifestyle 24-7. And the worship that Jesus loves that's what we're talking about. The final aspect, they're motivated by the cross. They're motivated by the cross. I love this. The disciples are indignant. What a waste, they're saying. Can you imagine the shame that put on Mary? Look at verse 7. Leave her alone, Jesus says. You know what the Greek language is there? Shut your pie hole. <laughs> it's not. But it's the tone. Like it, it's what Jesus is really getting across. Shut up. Enough. That's the tone of what he's saying here. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. He's quoting Deuteronomy 15.11, which really says this. Uh, it actually says this, Deuteronomy 15.11. You'll always have the poor among you, so you should always be open-handed to the poor. That's what he's quoting. But he's saying, and he's not contradicting that, he's saying, I won't always be with you. I wish at this point I could stop the gathering and humbly get inside your head and ask you this question. Why are you here? What motivates you to be here and gather with God's people? We have a ton of different motivations, right? Some of us, it's nostalgia. I I met a man in the first service. He uh, was a little boy who used to worship when we were on Jefferson in Clinton. That's back 60 years ago. And he came back, nostalgia. For some of us, it's bargaining. I cut a deal with God. I give him an hour a week. He watches my back the rest of the week. Some of us, it's superstition, kind of like karma. It's the way karma works. I do good, it comes back to me. For some of us, it's guilt. You're trying to give in to yourself and God that you're worth it, that you're, you're actually a person who's worthy. And so you come, because no one else of your friends are giving an hour a week. That used to be my motivation. None of these motivations will fuel you in the cultural current off this campus. None. The cross will, and a motivation of gratitude for what Christ has done for you. Why did Mary do it? Jesus gives us a clue. She didn't understand fully, but somehow in her mind, she knew what the disciples didn't. That, yeah, Jesus raised her brother from the dead, but I think it was that interaction we talked about last week outside of Bethany where Jesus said, I'm the resurrection, the life. She realized something's going to happen in the future that's not just going to affect her on earth, but her forever. And she's saying, I want to worship you. I don't understand fully, but I get this. Your death has a direct benefit to me forever. And it just overwhelms me. And so I use this nard, which is really to prepare people for burial and pour it out on you. When I was first in ministry, um, I was a chaplain for the UCLA Bruins. Uh, And in football season, we would do pregame chapels on Saturday morning. And depending on how big the game was, um, that that would say who comes to chapel. I've shared this story before, but... It was, uh, it was before the UCLA-Nebraska game. UCLA was number two in the country. Nebraska was number one. They were playing in the Rose Bowl, UCLA's home field. I kid you not, uh, 50 guys stayed in the hotel. 48 were in chapel that morning. 
Uh, and we brought in one of the best chapel speakers we knew. He's a pastor of a church called The Rock, Miles McPherson. Uh, and he lit it up and shared the gospel. And the true game really took place in chapel as uh, football players were giving their life to Christ that morning by visibly giving their life to Christ. As we finished, uh, everyone would go to their pregame meal. One man, he was a sophomore. His name was Matt. He stayed, Matt Darby, stayed and talked to me. He's like, is it true? I'm like, why? He's like, I gave my life to Christ today. Am I really forgiven? I go, oh, Matt, if you gave your life to Christ, you're forgiven. He says, you don't know what I did. He starts confessing to me. So he confessed something, like, that's forgiven. He confessed something, that's forgiven. Confessed something, that's forgiven too. And his eyes, he was um, African-American, very dark-skinned. His eyes got wide and bright. He's like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So they go to the pregame meal, then go into the locker room, and there was a player who was the spiritual leader on the team, the tight end named Corwin. And Corwin would pass out Sharpies to the players and have them put on their uniform somewhere because it wasn't for anyone but them a motivation to play that day that they would thank God, and that would cause the intensity of their play. They'd be motivated not by the crowd, not by the TV audience, not by the coach, but by something Christ did. Corwin took the Sharpie, and on his toes of his white cleats, he put a cross because he couldn't get over that Jesus died for him because he knew what he was. Now, Corwin was scouted. I'm sorry. Matt was scouted. It was Matt who put the cross. It was a defensive end. Uh, back safety as the uh, weak part of the defense of UCLA. He was just a sophomore. So the game opens, and the first play is right to Matt's side of the field. And Matt lays a hit on this guy that comes to his side. I I was on the Nebraska sideline. I can still, 30 years later, hear the ringing of the hit in my eyes. It was clean, but the Nebraska guy didn't didn't get up. They had to call a timeout and take him off the field. Later on, the second quarter, they tried it again. And Matt juke, 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 and hit this guy, another guy. Timeout, they take him off the field. It was the last play they called to Matt's side of the field. After the game, UCLA won, and, and I went on the field, and I was looking for Matt, because I've never seen him play like this. True story, and I go, what got into you? And he pointed to his cleats, and he said, I was just being thankful. <laughs> I think Mary was just being thankful. She realized that that cross and what Jesus was going to do had an impact on her life, and she couldn't help but pour out her life for him. That's worship that Jesus loves. I put on page three, and we've got we to gotta land this plane, but I put some of the benefits of the cross on page three. Um, and there's a lot of church language in here, but I would encourage you to sit at some point this week in these benefits of the cross for you, And you see if that doesn't well up something in you, some gratitude in you that actually causes you to worship through your obedience to Christ. Here's the bottom line. Men and women, there's a way things work. And the bottom line is Jesus is worthy of worship, extravagant worship. Jesus said he wanted this spoken about, this act, wherever the gospel is preached. He wanted us as followers of Christ. How are we going to stand in our culture? We're going to worship. Not just singing, we're going to worship 24-7. We're going to abandon our pride. We're going to give all we have. We're going to be motivated by the cross because we are in the debt of a God who has grace upon grace upon grace for us. That is what's going to mark followers of Jesus to stand in a culture that wants to take us under. Let's pray.
Thank you, Father. Thank you so much for your word, and thank you for the grace of worship. Thank you for the grace of abandon, that your call to us is abandon, and the grace when we fall short. God, this is not confining, and while, while it is counterintuitive and while we want to push back, I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, uh, to speak to us louder than our pushback and assuage all our fears, that the fragrance of our worship, of our lives, would be what marks us as a people on this peninsula, a life poured out for you, a life disguised, disciples disguised uh, as business people, plumbers, doctors, teachers, moms. May we be women and men throughout the week, students who are worshipers through the intensity, integrity, and ethic of our work. We pray this in Christ's name. And all God's people said, listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.